There are many ways people listen to vision, including on smart speakers. Just tell your smart speakers to play Vision Christian Radio. Alexa, play Vision Christian Radio. Vision. Yep, it really is that easy. You can also say, play V180 Radio for our music channel. It's just another way that Vision is helping you look to God daily. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. So we're back with more Christian insights into the war between Israel and the terrorist organisation Hamas. On the 7th of October, Hamas jihadis launched Operation Al-Aqsa Deluge. Entering Israel and killing over 1,400 people, the terrorists took as many as 200 captives, many of them women and children, as well as an unknown number of male Israeli Defence Force soldiers. So what happens after the Hamas deluge. Well, our special guest today, the Reverend Dr. Mark Jury, is a fellow at the Middle East Forum and a senior research fellow of the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. He's also a pastor and academic, writing on the connection between faith and culture, freedom of religion, persecuted minorities and discipling new Christians. He's director of the Institute for Spiritual Awareness. Dr. Mark Jury, a special welcome back to 2020. Great to be with you again, Neil. Mark, you are writing a series of posts this week, and uh, you're only part way through it. And for listeners, I'll tell them how they can connect with you to be able to access those posts. But you're tackling a whole lot of foundational understanding issues. Because as the dust settles and as the propaganda machines continue to uh, to be burning on all cylinders around the world, some of those foundational issues get lost. Why are you t- touching on all of these, these foundations for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the Middle East? There's so many misunderstandings and confusions around this topic and a lot of um, propaganda and rhetoric, as you said, And it's important for people to understand a a whole number of different things in order to make sense of what's happening, because it's easily, it's easy to get confused. Um, So my main focus of these daily posts, which are running for a week, and I'm about halfway through, um, each about a thousand words, I suppose. um, The main purpose of them is to explain what Hamas is and what's driving it and why it's done what it's done, because so many people were just shocked, like, why would you do something like that? What's the point? How can they... What benefit can it be to the to the Palestinian people to kill fifteen hundred Jews in a day? Like like how does that how does that work? So just to ex- my my main goal is to help people understand that and what what Hamas's strategy is. Let me ask you about some terminology I used in that introduction that comes from you, the Al Aqsa Deluge, or I guess in another word, you'd call it a Al-Aqsa flood. And while this hasn't been necessarily used in the terminology in, in a lot of mainstream reporting, at least not that I've heard, uh, give us your insights into this Al-Aqsa deluge and, and the way that these things have been uh, uh, depicted. Yes, that's the term that, that Hamas has used for this military operation. You know what armies are like. Every time they have an operation, they give it a name, a bit like... Uh, hurricanes and uh, but um, the two components of that are the deluge or flood and Alaksa. Alaksa refers 
It actually means the farthest mosque, and it's a reference in the Quran to a mosque, which um, Muslim tradition has taken to uh, to to refer to Jerusalem. Whether it actually meant that originally is another question. So, it's the you, you can say he's referring to Al Aqsa as one of the um, supposed three most holy Islamic sites. It's the temple that's mentioned in it's the place of worship that's mentioned in the Quran as a mosque. And it's referring to the Temple Mount um, in in Jerusalem. The deluge, I think, is a reference reference to the Quran's idea that when people are in Allah's way, when they reject Allah's messengers, He destroys them. And one of the ways in which He destroys people in the Quran is through a flood. So I think it's meant to signify that the Hamas attack was the um, the hand of God, if you like, the hand of Allah against the Jews, and it's also restoring the honor of um, the holy site, Al-Aqsa, which is the father's mosque, which is being taken over by Jews. So it's a, it, the goal of this is to liberate Al-Aqsa Mosque. So these are, these are religious references, basically. Is there something in the imagery and that might be in the Islamic mindset uh, that if you're talking about a flood, uh, sometimes the flood starts with a trickle and then it grows into mm-hmm. something a bit bigger and then ultimately becomes a flood. Is there something in Islamic thinking along those lines? No, it, the, 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 the judgment of God is meant to come suddenly and without um, anticipation. Uh, one of the passages in the Quran speaks of people snoozing in the afternoon when when they get destroyed. So, I think the fifteen hundred that were killed is meant to be a foretaste, a demonstration of what the the what Hamas wants to achieve in a bigger on a bigger scale. So, uh, they, they their rhetoric is always very grandiose. So they um, they're trying to say you know Israel is about to fall. Uh, we will destroy them. Many, many Palestinian leaders have been saying, you know, for well, for yonks really, that Israel is it hasn't got a future. It's not going to stand. We're about to destroy it. So it's it's sort of an um, it's a very grandiose claim that they're making. I want to get into some of these foundation understandings that you've been writing about. Uh, but before we do, um, your overall impression as things sit at the moment, because in some sense, I guess there's been this anticipation that Israel is going to begin a ground assault in Gaza. And there's been aerial bombardments that have been continuing on. And some people are saying, well, uh, you know, is this, uh, is there, what's the reason for waiting? Uh, is it uh, to enable people from the north in Gaza to move south and to get out of harm's way. Uh, Any thoughts here on the overall of what's happening? We've got Hezbollah in the north. Uh, You've got uh, threats even against Iran right now. Uh, You've got uh, issues even uh, towards the fears of what might happen in West Bank. Uh, Thoughts overall from you, Mark Dury? Yes, well, my my strengths are more in theology than politics or military strategy but my understanding of what's happening is that israel is preparing for a ground incursion into gaza this will be very very difficult and there'll be a lot of casualties on both sides this is all the tunnels they have to deal with in gaza um and the ruined um the ruined buildings as well which make for very difficult warfare conditions uh, and they have to prepare their soldiers for that. I mean, they're very experienced in this kind of war, but they've got hundreds of thousands of people mobilised. That's a huge logistical project. So they're taking time to get that ready. They're also um, 
targeting particular Hamas operatives and leaders, taking them out as much as they can to weaken Hamas. Um, the they've of course they've they've announced that um, they've warned Gazans civilians to move south. Uh, Egypt is blocking the the exit corridor uh, on in the south. They're not letting refugees out of Gaza. Or, um, so that's that is what it is. Um, and on the other hand, the, the Palestinians have this bad experience that when they fled conflict areas many years ago because of this conflict between Israel and the Arabs, they lost that land. They were unable to go back. And the ones that didn't flee stayed and they became part of Israel. The ones that did flee ended up in the Palestinian territory. So um, they're warning their people not to flee. Um, they're actually not too concerned about casualties in a certain sense because the more... Palestinian casualties are the better it is for their cause internationally. Um, in the north, Hezbollah is a powerful force, uh, more powerful than Hamas, and with a huge number of rockets uh, available to it. But the cost of opening up a front in the north will be that Lebanon will be really ruined. Uh, that is, it will become extremely damaging for that country, which is already in great difficulty. Uh, so. It's, it's not clear to me whether whether that front will be opened up or not. Um, Iran is certainly one of the backers of Hamas and has been providing weapons and, and strategic import and training. Um, they are always threatening to destroy Israel and have been doing that for 40 years now. Like it's just a common commonplace thing in Iran. Um, and the Americans are watching them. The Israelis will be too. Um, this this could expand and become a major conflict involving multiple countries. So we we hope and pray that won't be the case. For Israel's side, their um, their plan is victory. I think they've they've sort of given up on negotiated settlements. They they've come to the view that the only option for them now, after the Al Aqsa deluge, is to destroy Hamas and to um, take back. I think a part of Gaza, at least. Uh, so they're they're geared up for victory. They've they've sort of been persuaded that the only way to bring peace is to win a victory, not to not to negotiate with terrorists. So, yes, yeah, tough times ahead. Um, um, Israel is united at the moment, which uh, which they need to be. Um, I think the Gazans are in a terrible way. It's a, it's a humanitarian tragedy, of course, for the Gazans one that their leaders have have generated intentionally, I believe. Um, they put Israel in a position where they have really no option but to fight for victory. And and to fight for victory means cutting off water. It means weakening your enemy. It means um, destroying their capacity to use electricity, to communicate. These are part of the, you know, the natural nature of urban warfare. But the, ca the, the great casualties, of course, are the, are the Gazan civilians. And there has been real concern over the Gazan civilians and, of course, the protests that we might even see on our streets and uh, that are happening around the world um, use Gazan civilians as uh, the way to uh, to get the, the public on side. Um, but as you even indicated, um, the Hamas is not even concerned about its own civilians. So uh, there is a sense here in which what we think compassionately about civilians somehow rather isn't in the thoughts of the Hamas, or is that a, a typically uh, is that typical for Islam? What, what are your thoughts here as to as to how we might have that compassion? 
Well, we should have compassion and care for them. Um, and it's important, I think, to acknowledge that the Hamas leadership has created this humanitarian catastrophe. Um, they, they had the option of not sending in rockets, of not uh, trying to kill and rape and, and torture um, fa Israeli families living peacefully in their villages, in their kibbutzim. But um, they chose not to do that. So they've created this, this situation. Um, one, of, one of the things I think that causes part of the problem is that from Hamas's perspective, um, if Muslims die under attack from Israel, they become martyrs, they go to paradise. So it's sort of good for them in a way. I don't mean to be cynical, but um, at the same time, Hamas wants to have its cake and eat it too. So they celebrate these martyrs and, you know, be grateful that they're going to paradise because they've been killed in, in this war. On the other hand, they're full of bitterness and hatred for Israel for having done this. So they, they're, they're kind of, they, 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 in a sense, they don't care enough about their own people. Um, but in a sense, they, uh, they're, they're very angry and upset about it. So it's a, it's a kind of mess, really, um, psychological mess. And um, one of the problems is that Hamas really believes it can win. Like it really thinks that the sacrifice is worth it and it would result in victory. And that causes them to, again, downplay the significance of the of the of the devastation that they have brought down on the heads of their own people is it a western idea that we have mark that says a negotiated settlement would be the best outcome and uh, that would preserve life on every side uh, but uh, you seem to indicate too that it's uh, it's a little bit like military muscle the use of force of who is the most powerful is the way that uh, the, the some of these conflicts actually uh, settled in the Middle East? Is that a different sort of a thinking to what we have? Yes, well, normally, historically, wars are fought until one side defeats the other and basically kills them or destroys them, or um, or the, the two sides wear each other out until all the men are dead, you know. So there's that sort of two, two ways in which wars go. Um, Western people with their um, Geneva Conventions and uh, uh, and the experiences of the First and Second World War have have often seen wars as battles for um, money, uh, influence, strategic you know goals, and then you try and negotiate a peace to get a win-win for the two sides. But one of the problems in this case is that from Hamas's perspective. This is a war to completely eradicate Israel, to destroy it and to kill its people. And, you know, you have preachers in mosques saying, Allah, please give us the next of the Jews. That is, we want to kill them all. So if, if one side is fighting a genocidal war of complete obliteration, that means the other side is fighting a war of survival. The Jews are fighting to survive. They're fighting for their very lives. So this is a somewhat different situation from um you know a border incursions and fighting over who's going to control which piece of territory this is this can't be resolved by handing back land by establishing even a two-state solution the hamas is committed to its pathway in fact it's its charter its founding document explicitly rejected all peace solutions all peace solutions except for total victory and annihilation of israel um so so that's it. They will not tolerate a Jewish majority in, in what they consider to be Palestine. The, the, um, 
the chant that you'll often hear in the po from the pro-Palestinian protesters uh, from the river to the sea means that all the land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River must be Palestine uh, with, I think, Muslim rule. Um, and that can only happen if the Jews are killed or driven out. And so that's that's the situation. It's a, it's a, it's a devastating situation to be in. It means that really at present the, the Hamas has schooled the Israelis and trained them in effect by these, this violence to believe the only option for them is total victory. Just before the break, Mark, I said Israel is preparing to retaliate. You've got a thought or two around that. Perhaps that's not the right word. What's the best way to describe what Israel is about to or is embarking on? Yes, retaliation implies some kind of, um, you know, almost revenge. Or, you know, you've hurt us, we're going to hurt you. Um, in the past, Israel has had a policy of deterrence. So if there was a terrorist attack, they would then uh, come down with force against supporters of the terrorist. Um, and the, the purpose of that that mode of dealing with a, a, a Palestinian terrorism was that the Palestinians would have to weigh up if we if we go and kill an Israeli or a group of Israelis, there will be a cost to us. Is it worth the cost? Um, there has to be a cost. So, but what's happening about to happen with Gaza is not a retaliation as such. Although I'm sure there'd be some in the Israeli Defence Force that'll be thinking in terms of revenge or retaliation, but it is actually a campaign to have victory. It, its purpose is not to retaliate, which implies. Um, in a way, they've already retaliated. More Palestinians have been killed than Jews were killed uh, on October the 7th. But what's going to happen is not a retaliation. It's a it's a strategy to win a victory, to actually completely destroy the enemy. So its military status is um, is very different. This is what has shifted. Israel is no longer pursuing deterrence. It's now going to pursue victory. And Hamas has taught it that that's the only way forward. When we talk about taking the head of the snake, uh, you know, the head of the threat to Israel, and as my thoughts are just running wild here, this idea that uh, there is a threat uh, that's coming from Israel, reportedly that if Hezbollah attacks from the north, then Israel's missiles might not be aimed as much at Hezbollah as they might actually be aimed at Iran. So if we're talking about a strategy to win victory, not necessarily retaliation, and there's been talk about the Iranian nuclear program and the threat that that poses to Israel, is it perhaps a likelihood that the head might actually be uh, people in uh, in Iran. Uh, thoughts from you here, Mark? Well, in the past, Israel has bombed Iran and it also has conducted assassinations of nuclear scientists in Iran. Recently, it bombed two airports in Syria. Um, so, yes, it's quite willing and prepared to pursue um, its enemies into neighbouring countries if they are, if it can be sure that they are supporting um, the war against them in in from the Palestinian territory. So that's that could well increase. And um, Israel is a nuclear power. It's a it's a highly technologically advanced society. It's it's going to use all means at its disposal. I don't mean including nuclear weapons, but it will. It's it, it realizes it needs to win this victory, and if it needs to, it will uh, it will intervene in in uh, in neighboring countries as well. So. 
that is a great risk for the region that there could be an escalation and um, a, a wider war. I mean, when when the Alaksa uh, deluge event happened, I thought this is just the precursor to an attack on all fronts. Um, but as I said before, whether Hezbollah in the north launches a full-on assault is far from clear and um, it would be extremely damaging to Lebanon because of the kinds of response that the Israelis would bring down on the heads of Hezbollah and on southern Lebanon. Taking calls on 1-800-316-316, let's hear from Duncan in Tasmania. Hi, Duncan. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, hi, Mark, as well. I've just been listening to the talk back and um, just as you were speaking about the, the flood, it just reminded me of... Um, of Isaiah chapter 59 verse 19 okay if I just read that out yes so it says um, from the west people will fear the name of the Lord and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along good let's get a thought or two from Mark does that uh, scripture strike a chord with you Mark Jury? Yeah, I mean that speaks to the sudden suddenness of the coming of of the Lord. I mean, a flood in a desert area can be overwhelming. You can you can be dry as anything and sitting on a riverbed when suddenly you get swept away because water is is coming in the middle of the desert. It's like it's like that in Australia as well. We always knew not to camp on a dry riverbed in outback Australia because you could be flooded overnight. So the flood is something sudden and very destructive. So that that's the image that's that's picked up there. I wouldn't see that as a prophecy about what's happening here. Um, yeah, yep. uh, but it's, yeah, I think it's, it refers to the suddenness and the shocking devastation that, that a flood can bring. So not a prophecy. Duncan, anything further to add? Uh, just the encouragement that, um, that the breath of the Lord, you know, will bring, will bring this move, you know, that, that he'll be like a pent up flood when he acts, you know, it's his, his breath that will actually produce that. And that's, that, that's an encouragement. Uh, good thoughts, Duncan. Let me just come to Mark here. When we're talking theologically and we're talking about the people of Israel and contemplating war that could well escalate into all sorts of different dimensions, um, the hand of God with the people of Israel, uh, no doubt that there's so many secular people in Israel, they're not thinking about the hand of God, but I wonder whether you've got a thought or two around around whether people in Israel may well contemplate the hand of God at work. Yes, I have three lectures on how Christians can think about Israel, which are on YouTube. And if people Google my channel, at Mark Dury on, on, on YouTube, or Google me on YouTube, you'll find the channel. And there's three lectures there that talk about that. So my my views on Israel and God's hand in history is complicated. Um I think it's I think it's spiritually significant that Israel has been created. That is that after two thousand years, the Jews have returned and established a presence there in the land. Um, I think also God's promises to the Jews are eternal. They're not just for a period of time, and and His promises of national salvation and of His favor, I think, are still applicable. The the, the promise to Abraham of the blessing. Uh, of God upon his descendants still apply. So in my view, you you can't think of Israel without also thinking about the hand of God in, in history. And Mark, before we take any more calls, we were talking about biblical prophecies just before the news. 
And you were saying that there's some danger in over-spiritualizing the conflict in Israel. How do you think the Christian believer perhaps ought to look at what's happening as these events are unfolding on our in our media? Yes, I mean, one of the challenges is to maintain a compassion for all sides. You know, that this is a terrible outcome for the Palestinians. It's devastating for Israel. Um, there's a lot of suffering and destruction going on. And one of the challenges with seeing a, a conflict like this, just in terms of um, God's hand on one side and not on the other, is that you can dehumanize the other. Um, this is, in fact, what Hamas does. It dehumanizes Israelis and Jews in general as part of its battle. And um, that is really destructive. I, I think we should look at this. Certainly, we should look at this conflict in terms of justice. Like, what? who is acting with justice? Who's acting unjustly? Um, is there a, a, a side that is acting more fairly or whatever? That's reasonable. But to kind of lay over... Um, a spiritual frame makes it, I think, harder, um, and and it's it sort of exacerbates the conflict. So, I mean, I would think about Israel in, as a secular state, basically fighting for its survival against an enemy that wants to destroy it for religious reasons, and that's that's the way I see the conflict, um, rather than in some sort of spiritualized end time scenario, which I think can be can be misleading. And at the same time, you're saying there's almost like a dual way you need to look at it because, yes, while you're looking at an issue of justice and security, um, as the Christian, you are mindful that there are those things that are designated for the people of God. So in some sense, in the back of your mind, you're, you're trying to make sense of those as well, aren't you? Yes, I think Israel is not theologically neutral. Israel is a manifestation of God's kindness and faithfulness to the jews no question in my mind about that but it's but it's government's just trying to govern a country for secular criteria it's not a it's not the kingdom of god and it needs to be assessed on that basis and i i do also believe that the resistance or the opposition to israel is significantly influenced by uh islamic anti-semitic hatred which is which is certainly of a spirit has a spiritual root it's not it's not just an ordinary thing. It has a. It's a. It's an animosity which, I think, not, also Christians have been anti-Semitic too. There's a. There's a something quite profoundly wrong and um, and bad about about th- that those anti-Semitic roots in in the conflict in Israel. And there might be listeners who have a question or two around some of those challenging thoughts. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Sevda in Tasmania. Hi, Sevda. Welcome along. Uh, hi, how are you? Very well. What are your thoughts? So what do you think um, the whole situation in Israel, what's happening right now, could that be the setting for a scene for the Antichrist to come on the stage? So what do you think if King Charles being an Antichrist and the temple will be rebuilt soon and he will sit in the temple posing himself as God, bring peace to Middle East and um, cause everyone to receive Mark of the Beast? Uh, well, there's some issues around what we might expect the scripture to tell us and what we might even read into uh, that by way of 
what we sometimes uh, are often cautioning about, uh, a thought or two here. What, what are your thoughts? Because some of these sorts of things are quite prevalent in people's minds. Uh, Mark, your thoughts for Sevda? Yes, I don't think that's realistic. I don't think King Charles is going to be in Israel, you know, and um, that's I doubt that's, that's just not going to happen at this present time. I mean, there's a deeper issue as to how we read the book of Revelation in the light of history. And um, I don't see Revelation as just a, a roadmap of historical events that we kind of walk through. I see it more as a, um, a narrative which reveals the hidden structure of the world, really, the spiritual battle that we face. And it's a great resource for discipleship. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the future will hold in terms of the end times. Certainly, I think that the return of the Jews to Israel is uh, one of the signs of the end times um, because it's promised in the Bible. And I also see the gospel going out to the nations as one of the signs that the return of Christ is closer. So I think there are signs in the world. But there's also within Christian history, a long history of people misreading the signs. Around the year 1000, people believed the world was coming to an end. There have been many Christian groups that have thought the return of Jesus was imminent and 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 they've been proved wrong again and again. So, um, you know, the Bible says that there are signs, but it also says that it'll become unexpectedly. So we, we sort of live between those two, intention between those two, um, two realities. So I think it's not helpful to see what's happening in Israel in terms of end times theology at the present time. Sevda, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. A question, a comment, even a critique uh, for where things are going. 1-800-316-316. Mark, the thought of Hamas, and uh, of course you don't launch attacks uh, without some thought of victory, but you've got a few thoughts around why Hamas thinks it can win. Uh, What are your thoughts here? Yes, it's like taking slingshots against a nuclear uh, power. Uh, what are they thinking that they're going to... Why do they think they can win? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons, actually, why they think they can win. One is they remember that Muslims have won great victories in history. They they think about how the Crusaders were defeated or how the Russians were driven out by the Afghanis. They think Allah has promised victory in the Quran. Um they believe that terror will be effective. The Quran teaches them that you can strike terror into into your enemies' hearts. They believe that there are Muslims all over the world that support them, and they've been calling on Muslims everywhere to rise up. That two billion people will will, will come on side with their cause. They believe that every Muslim everywhere is is duty bound by Islam to fight the what they call the occupation. That whenever Muslim lands are occupied, that every Muslim has that so they think there's this huge reservoir of support they also believe that the quran teaches that um jews love life more than death they often say this and quoting the quran that is that they're not willing to fight that the jews will do anything in order not to fight um and they believe that they'll go to paradise if they die fighting so all these reasons come together and it inspires them to do devastating attacks with no actual strategic advantage to winning a war that just make your enemy angry. Um, it's a bit like throwing a, a bee's nest into a, into a bear's den. You know, the bear is going to come out. And 
So, you know, the, they're, they're very misguided, but they're driven by a whole set of beliefs that, that teach them that they're just about, that, that victory's just around the corner. You've mentioned that you're writing a series of articles this week, and about halfway through that, one of those ones you're going to be talking about is what makes someone a Palestinian, because there's some debate around, uh, you know, who the true Palestinians are. Uh, thoughts here and how that relates to Hamas and the Gazan people, even people in the West Bank. Uh, what makes someone a Palestinian? Well, this is a very big and complex topic that you could talk about for hours, but let me try and make it as simple as I can. Um, the word Palestine, Palestina, was revived by the Romans after they defeated the Jews in the in the in the in the Jewish wars, and um, they wanted to obliterate the memory of Judea, so they they brought in the term Palestine. It, it's named after the Philistines who disappeared 500 years earlier, and that name persisted. It, it, the province, generally under Muslim rule, various kinds was called Syria, but the southern parts of that was called Palestine, and um, both in European languages and Arabic. Um, and that was settled by a whole range of different peoples. There were Greeks, there were Aramaic speakers, there were Jews, there were Arabs. A lot of Arabs moved into the area when it was occupied for Islam. And the term Palestine continued to be used in the second, in the first part of the 20th century. Um, but it wasn't an ethnicity or a national identity, but it was a regional designation. So there were Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Christians. Um, and for a while, the British uh, had the mandate of Palestine, which included Jordan at the time. And some Jews in trying to establish a Zionist state had, think, had thought about calling it Palestine, but in the end, they called it Israel. And so they changed lots of different names, like the Palestine Philharmonic Orchestra became the Israel Philharmonic. And one of the effects of that decision to call the Jewish state Israel was that the, the term Palestine was sort of abandoned by the Jews and the Arabs took it up as, a, as an identity to oppose the legitimacy of Israel. It, it came to signify the illegitimacy of the Jews. And then the Palestinians developed this narrative that they'd been there for 5,000 years and Jesus was a Palestinian a freedom fighter and the Jews have never had any claim in the land whatsoever. And this has become kind of standard rhetoric amongst the Palestinians. So the Palestinian identity was forged out of a, the Arabist movement in the late 19th century. It's been, cre it's a created nationality basically. Um, and the Palestinian people, obviously their ancestors, many of them have been in the land a long time, but they, they in order to win the battle against the Jews, they created this identity. And it's, it's very corrosive and destructive. There's never been a Palestinian state um, before the 21st century, the 20th century. Um, it didn't exist, and um, it's always been occupied by different powers, um, but it's become a, like a touchstone of, of resistance. So these days, um, a lot of the rhetoric is around colonialism. The, the indigenous people, it, it is said, are the Palestinians, which denies you know a, a long history of Jewish presence in the area. Um, and the Jews are like these foreign alien occupiers who need to be driven out. Ironically, the whole Muslim presence in, uh, in, in the area is a result of Islamic occupation and conquest. But uh, from an Islamic perspective, once land has been conquered or occupied for Islam, it's permanently Islamic, so nothing can change that. So, I mean, the losers in all this are the Palestinian Christians. They've 
they've been dwindling uh, in numbers in every state in that region, except I think for Israel. Israel is the one where Christians are flourishing the most, but it's re been really devastating. Um, the, the course of the 20th century has been devastating for Christian presence. So in Jordan, Christians have gone from 20% to 2%. Amongst the Palestinians, they've gone from 11% in 100 years to 1%. So, um, yeah, they're really, they're suffering a great deal. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Murray in Mudgee. Hi, Murray. Welcome along. Hey, good day. How are you? Good, Murray. What are your thoughts? Um, there's two things come to come to mind. Firstly, I want to uh, totally denounce the, the Palestinian uh, Hamas uh, attack on Israel um, as a military organisation. Um, it's not a war. Um, these guys went in and killed women, children, and babies. Um, that is totally apprehensible, um, and they are not treated as collateral damage as what a normal war would be. Uh, I just think it was just total barbarianism. The two things that you were talking about this morning that brought my attention was the Jewish people. Uh, they uh, are called hundreds of times in God, God's book, uh, His chosen people. And the second one is uh, the, the, the blessings and the promises of God to Abraham. Um, I mean, this cannot be um, ignored by, by people. And you know, the people that have railed against Israel need to look at the, the Old Testament, which they follow as well, and, and acknowledge it. But the second thing is, you know, God allowed the Jews to be conquered uh, several times during their history because they turned away from him. Now, we were talking last night, is this a punishment for turning away from him? Uh, or is it just what you were just talking about a minute ago against... Palestinians um, railing against Israel because it's now Islamic land. Murray, good thoughts there and uh, some significant things you're bringing to our attention. And I'm going to ask for a quick response uh, from Mark Jury. Mark, thoughts for Murray? I don't think it's a punishment of Israel, no. I think it's a, you know, the uh, the murders on the October the 7th was a triumph of evil, really. And we see many of these in history. Um, I don't see the hand of God in it. If there is a silver lining to that massacre, it's that Israel uh, is finally decided to fight for victory instead of um, to have a negotiated peace. And that, that'll probably bring, I expect that will bring peace much faster than what's been tried in the past. But I, the interesting thing about the rules of war, you know, is, this is not a war. He said this is, you know, just, I suppose, just a massacre and had no, no point militarily. I think if you're fighting a genocidal war, if your purpose is to kill the enemy, you know, that's not within the Western understanding of what wars are for, but that's a very ancient understanding of what a war is for, that you'd, you'd kill the enemy and then you'd take their property. And that's actually the view that Hamas has. Um, and in that context, this was a successful operation. It, 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 there were 1,500 less Israelis at the end of it. So that's, it's not the way we in the West think about war, but it's a very ancient way of thinking about war. And I think that's the way Hamas thinks about it. Murray in Mudgee, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Katie is in Nil in Victoria. Hi, Katie. Hi, gentlemen. How are you today? Very well, Katie. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, so I didn't hear the last couple of calls, so I don't think, because I've been on hold, so I'm not sure. I hope I'm not doubling up. Um, sorry, I actually have been trying not to call up today because I'm gonna, I don't want to set the cat among the pigeons, but I think I might. Um, so just in the history of Israel, um, when they were living righteously, God would bless them, and then when they would rebel against God, you know, he would uh, bring in, you know, destruction or allow destruction. Not that it ever justified the people that were attacking them, if that makes sense. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's exactly what's going on, but also I do believe a lot of the books, uh, sorry, things in Revelation are actually specifically playing out, which... You know, Jesus said that when he returns, and I think somewhere in the book of Revelation, he actually says that when he comes back, he cuts the time short, otherwise no flesh would have been saved because so many people are going to get killed all over the earth. I also see world politics playing out that I believe that, you know, China and Russia, like I think Australia is going to get invaded as well. I'm sorry, I'm just, I don't know when that's going to happen. Um, I think we're being invaded from the inside at the moment by China, and I think we are going to probably have a Katie, physical invasion by lots of, China, lots Indonesia. Lots of good points you're making here, and there's probably more than we can cover in a short response, but I'm going to ask for a short response again. Um, yep. Thoughts here, Mark, for Katie? I, I just don't believe that the uh, murder of those children and families, the rape of women taking captives, that this was the hand of God in judgment against Israel. And... Um, I believe in the future of Israel, actually, that they will come through this stronger. Um, so, yeah, that's a sort of simple comment. I think it's a, it's a dangerous way to think that, you know, if the sun's shining, God is for you. If it's, if it's raining, God isn't for you. It's, it doesn't, it's not the way things work. I think it's important to seek to discern the hand of God in, in geopolitical events and in the course of history. And nations do rise and fall, and God does judge them. But... But it's important not to be simplistic to ju to jump to judgment um, after every single battle or episode. Katie, thank you so much for your call. Let's take one more call. Alex is in Melbourne. Hi, Alex. Welcome. Oh, hello there. Yes, uh, the the brutality and the um, you, know, you, you can't put a, an understanding to it. But I get back to the Word of God where. Um, uh, uh, Ishmael was born, and God said he will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against his brothers, and his brothers' hands against him. And it's all because of our sin. I think that I believe God's righteous in every way. Every way. That's that's all I had to say. Thank you. Good, Alex. A uh, quick thought from Mark. Yeah, so I, I have a different view on Ishmael. I think that Ishmael was not an Arab. And that the references to Arabs in the um, Old Testament are quite distinct at a later period of history from the references to the Ishmaelites. Um, so I think it's a mistake to interpret Arab identity or Muslim identity in terms of Ishmael. I think that was a, an idea that Josephus developed um, and other early Jewish writers, but I don't think it really holds water. Alex, thank you so much for your call. Let's put a line under those calls now. Uh, to touch on one more important point 
before we go, uh, before we have to sign off, uh, I wanted to just ask you about the rise in anti-Semitism. Uh, certainly there's a polarising around the world and some are now coming more boldly with their own anti-Semitic thoughts or actions. Um, just is, is a different sort of a, a way I want to just frame something and get your thoughts here, Mark, because I picked up something over the weekend that that the more literal your Bible interpretation, uh, the more likely you perhaps are going to be pro-Israel. Uh, the more allegorical uh, that you might look at the Bible, uh, a little less likely to love and appreciate God's plans for Israel and therefore perhaps even allowing something of an anti-Semitic focus to come. I don't know whether that uh, strikes a chord with you, but uh, that certainly is uh, puts us all as Christians into a place where we say, well, how do we think God is using uh, the uh, the things of Israel uh, to, uh, to as we understand that biblically? Any thoughts around that? Christians have a long history of anti-Semitism, sometimes with disastrous uh, in effects, um, uh, and... That's very painful. I used to live in Caulfield in Melbourne, and some of my neighbours, their family, older family members, had memories of pogroms against Jews, often on Good Friday, for example, when the story of Jesus' crucifixion would stir up hatred. Now, this is a part of Christian history that needs to be acknowledged. And a key issue, really, that shapes that is whether you think Christians have replaced Israel, Christianity has replaced Judaism. And so this is replacement theology. And um, many Christians have held that view. And I think it's really mistaken. I think God's promises to Israel are irrevocable, as Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. And um, the Gentile church does not replace Israel, has not replaced Israel. And I think you're right that many Christians develop a, um, a sympathy and a love for Israel because of the scriptures, because of the Bible. And that certainly influenced me. I, you know, God loves the Jews, according to the Bible. And if you love God, you should love what he loves. It's it's very simple logic, you know. Um, so I think that's that's definitely the case. Um, in, on another level, I've been deeply concerned about rising um, is uh, anti-Semitism uh, around the world for more than 20 years. I think I gave my first sermon on this in 2001. And it's getting really toxic. It's getting frightening for Jews in, in, in universities in America of all places. Um when I first became really interested in Islam 20 years ago, I contacted B'nai B'rith, which is an organization in, in around the world that, that combats anti-Semitism. And, and they told me that the area where I lived in Brunswick, which is not a safe place for Jews to be wearing a um, Jewish clothing or hat and so on, because of the Islamic presence in the area. And that the Brunswick, Sydney Road was a dangerous place for Jews. And that was 20 years ago. But these recent pro-Palestinian demonstrations have been full of anti-Semitic hatred in, in many places. And it's a very scary time for many Jews all across the West. And my concern is that this has been getting worse for 20 years. It's not, it's not just a blip now. It's the result of an accumulated increasing hostility. And it's deeply concerning and it needs to be opposed and it is really profoundly wrong, and Christians should be speaking up against it. Just at the risk of taking a little longer, if you feel as a Christian that you've had anti-Semitic thoughts rising, is there a remedy for that, Mark? Is there something you can turn that around and 
uh, and in be pro-Israel in a biblical sense? I think there's two steps. One is um, to repent. Say, Lord, please forgive me for all forms of hatred or prejudice or bias against any people, including the Jews. Um, you should fear the Lord, really, and, and turn away from that, even if you are not fully aware of how it's working in your life. The second thing is, I think, is is pray a simple prayer, Lord, please give me your affections. The things that you love, I would love. And the things that you don't like, I would not like. Help me, help me, Lord, to have your heart for the world that you've made, to love people as you love people, or to love the people of Israel as you love them. Because that's really what it's about. It's about entering into the affections of God. Uh, so I think that's um, that's my my best advice. Another thought is, you know, be open to alternative um perspectives and information and if you find yourself saying oh jews are so powerful in the world they run the world or you know they control the media or they control international finance if you find yourself believing things like that i think you're in trouble that's already you know you're walking into uh, that pretty unsafe place and jews are a very small number of people in the world they they are influential quite disproportionately to their numbers but they're not they don't control the world they don't drive international affairs this is a lie you know that was that's been promulgated for more than 100 years and it's that jews are not bloodthirsty they're not seeking to damage other people um if if the jews were guilty of all the hateful uh, you know labels that hamas had thrown at them they would have wiped out palestinians a very long time ago um, and that's, it's just, it's irrational. So if you feel yourself verging into those areas, then, you know, take steps, repent, ask God to give you his heart. Well, we do have to draw things uh, to a close. The Reverend Dr. Mark Dury has been our guest. Dury, spelt D-U-R-I-E. He's a fellow at the Middle East Forum, Senior Research Fellow, the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology, pastor and academic, and also director of the Institute for Spiritual Awareness. I mentioned that he has a series of articles that he is posting this week. He's midway through, and some of those articles we've been talking about today, you might want to get a deeper perspective and connect directly with Mark Jury. There is a website, he mentioned it a time or two, markjury.com markjury.com and uh, I imagine people can connect with you uh, send a message to you subscribe to these articles Mark and so I'd encourage listeners uh, to really get some great deep insight markjury.com Mark thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and heart with us today on 2020 Thank you Neil it's been a pleasure to talk about these weighty matters Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.